We could take all day to, uh, all morning to uh, share and pray for needs that are weighing heavy on our hearts. Um, mentioned our dear brother and sister earlier on, and I neglected another very urgent prayer request, which is just for Becky Wilkes in recovery uh, from her knee surgery this week and the, the pain that she's experiencing. I want to rectify that and pray for her now. Lord, uh, thank you that you are with us. Um, sunny days, rain shiny days, days of good health and days of um, difficulty and unrelenting pain. You are close to us in our need. You are close to Becky. Would you please be with her? Um, Strengthen her in her spirit through yet another trial that you're walking our dear sister through and our brother Lowell and Aaron and Sherry and their kids and Ethan and Emma and Isaac and Michaela and all of us who who love her and hurt with them. Um, Strengthen her, please. Uh, May you be glorified um, in sustaining your children in another trial. Amen. I trust that each of you have Thanksgiving plans for this week. Uh, as this, like, what? Thanksgiving? Feels early this year for some reason. I think it is. Uh, as a side note, if you do not have plans, and I confirm this with Leanne, Leanne, yes, Leanne adequately, uh, eagerly confirms, you are welcome to join us at our house. We live right here. Uh, so Come. Uh, you're like, you don't mean that. We do mean that, and we want you to come. We want no one to just don't sit at home. We had a really depressing Easter lunch one time at a Taco Bell, just Leanne and I. It was a really bad Sunday. We were like, this, this cannot happen again. Uh, and so if you have a depressing Thanksgiving in mind, then come to our house. Uh, it will be noisy, and you will be welcomed, and we want you there. Uh, just catch us after the gathering. Be like, what can we bring, right? And we'll have chairs that we'll bring from here to there, We want you with us if you have nowhere else already to go. That's not a guilt trip. That's just an open invitation. Uh, If you dropped in unannounced, we would still welcome you, of course. It would just take a little extra last-minute preparation. That would be kind of crazy, wouldn't it? Right? It's just like a handful of families. I mean, like, we love you. It's like the Ellisons were like, great, and they didn't text us, and they're like, we just show up. We'd be like, wow, that would be amazing. Like, we would love to celebrate with you guys, but we'd just be like, but we need to find some more chairs. And maybe a little bit more food, you know, but if someone just unexpectedly showed up on your doorstep around mealtime, like, that would be really, that would be a lot, right? Uh, according to Keith, that would be very Ugandan. They're like, so if you're like, the Amblers don't mean it, then show up at the McFarland's house, <laughs> all right? You know, in fact, honestly, in most cultures around the world, they wouldn't find that strange at all. To show up at your house and then expect uh, to be welcomed in. Uh, Kenya, same? Yes? Okay. Uh, other cultures, other people, they, they expect unexpected guests. I don't know how that works, because if you're expecting the unexpected, is it still unexpected? Uh, but they also eagerly provide for them. They would provide food. They would even provide lodging for the night. I wonder, would you do that? They just showed up at your door. I, I, maybe we would more gladly and eagerly point them to the best local restaurant uh, and the nearest comfortable hotel. Maybe, maybe pay for it, but there's something, sometimes we guard our homes a little bit too carefully. Hospitality is kind of an open homedness. Uh, I want you to imagine, though, having an unexpected guest at your Thanksgiving meal. How would you feel? Surprise! How would you respond? Oh, 
oh, so glad to see you. Are you? Well, now imagine that the unexpected guest is Jesus. Kind of changes the scenario a little bit, right? Like, like really him. What if the eternal Son of God took on human form, showed up at your front door 1.30 p.m. this Thanksgiving? If Jesus came to your house for Thanksgiving, what would you do? Genesis chapter 18. You could turn there, because this is the scenario placed before Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. Moses writes this, And the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Well, who were these guests? Verse 1 says, The Lord appeared. That's sort of a heading over the story. And then it's three men, uh, but from the story as a whole, which does continue beyond the text that I'm going to address today, we know that this is the Lord uh, and two angels that are with him. Did Abraham know that right away? Like, did he know verse 1 when verse 2 happened? We don't, we don't know. Uh, the Lord had, to appear, had appeared to him excuse me, before in chapter 17, so it could be that Abraham recognized him, assuming that when the Lord appears in... Uh, somewhat of a human form, that it always looks the same. Text just doesn't answer some of these questions. Uh, but later in the conversation, we know that Abraham did know who this was. He addresses him as Lord. He doesn't do it initially. Verse 3, it's just a normal word for, for Lord, just a kind of could be a term of politeness. Uh, but later, I mean, he, he's speaking in prayer terms. So he eventually comes to know who this is, that this is not just a guy, uh, that this is his God. This is Yahweh that he is speaking to. Abraham does know this. This text is a great example of, of a very lavish hospitality, and that would have been and still is normal in Middle Eastern cultures and many cultures around the world, uh, but lavish hospitality is not quick. Even just the butchering and preparing of this calf could have taken, someone said, eight hours, right? This old man is running. Bake a whole bunch of bread. We've got to butcher this cow. We've got to skin it, and we've got to prepare it. I won't go into all those things. And then you've got to cook it, and then you've got to get the curds. You've got to do, like, so it's not just like, well, let me grab those leftovers I have frozen, throw them in the microwave, right? No frozen, no microwave, no leftovers. There's a lot of preparation that has to do with this, but uh, hospitality and generosity were more important than efficiency. That's just one of the pieces that we see in this. But what's most amazing about this is not so much that Abraham provided a lavish meal for the Lord. I think what I find most amazing about this is that the Lord ate it. 
Never seen that before looking at this text. God came to Abraham's house, tent. God came to Abraham's house, and Abraham served God food, and God ate at Abraham's table. This is the only time in all the Old Testament when God does this. God provides food for other people. God receives things as offerings from other people. God ate Abraham's food at Abraham's table. A good king would provide food for his people. But there are no other examples of God actually sitting down to eat. Uh, If it doesn't go without saying, God and angels, they were not actually hungry. God didn't need this meal. He didn't actually need the refreshment that was being provided here. Like, did he start farther away and actually walk up to Abraham so he could see him from a distance? Or Abraham's sitting in his tent and he's, he's drowsy. He wakes up and there are three guys just standing there like, oh, where'd they come from? I, have, I don't know. Uh, God nor angels, the Bible doesn't speak of them having permanent physical bodies that need nourishment. But this text, in appearing to him and waiting and sitting down and eating, it does speak of the kind of relationship that God has with his people. He's not just a king who from afar provides food and stands back. He's the kind of God who comes to his people individually and would sit down and eat with them. This relationship is so real and so true and so personal that God knows your address. And he could show up at your front door for a meal. Doesn't this point us so wonderfully to Jesus? Because that's the next time that God eats with his people. Jesus went to a real wedding to celebrate a man and a woman who were really getting married. And he really ate and drank with them, even before he blessed them with the best wine ever. Simon Peter's mother-in-law was healed and then prepared and served food to Jesus, and Jesus ate it in his house. Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, held a great feast at his house uh, with a large group of his tax collector friends. Jesus was the guest of honor. He ate and he drank with them. He was accused. That was an accusation against him from some people. He eats and drinks with sinners. Jesus is like, yes, I do. Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to a meal. Jesus went and ate with him. And what did he say to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm coming to your house today. And salvation came to that house along with Jesus that day. Wonderful things happen around the dinner table. Conversations and community and relationships. Really, that's the point of our monthly fellowship meals. It's not just to put another thing on the calendar. I mean, I live, what, 100 yards away, so food's not far for me. Um, So we can gather around a table because better conversations happen around food. (laughs) Good conversations can happen without food. Better conversations happen with food. I think the best conversations happen in homes with food, where our lives are opened up to one another. And that's hospitality. That's community. That's Christ's church living as a family. We eat together. And Jesus is there with us in that. We are his body eating together. Whatever you do... Whenever you do this for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do it for me. When did you feed me? 
when you fed your brother, my brothers and my sisters. Jesus came over for Thanksgiving. What would you do? You'd feed him, right? You'd be lavish about that, sitting down. You'd be amazed. But I have another question for you. If Jesus came to your house for Thanksgiving, what would you talk about? While reclining casually around Abraham's table outside Abraham's tent, eating Abraham's food, God begins to speak to Abraham, starting in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid, and he said, no, but you did laugh. I love how Sarah is just eavesdropping on this conversation behind the door of the tent. That is so real. That's exactly what would have happened, right? Ladies, right? And you'd be there, and so you should. That's fine. Like, I just, I love that. Uh, But if you were to summarize Sarah's response in one word, what would it be? For me, that word would be doubt. She hears, she understands, but she doubts, right? No way. That's not going to happen. What is doubt? That kind of makes it, there's like a sting to that word, isn't there? Like, I want to say that differently. We certainly don't want to be talked about having doubts ourselves, or at least we don't want to admit that that's a possibility or that that's a reality. But what is doubt? I don't think all doubt is the same. I think there are levels of doubt or expressions of doubt. Um, Some would say it's like they would doubt even the existence of God. They'd say there is no God at all. That would obviously be very serious, probably the deepest, serious level of doubt. Um, I doubt. (laughs) I don't think that any of you have that. I don't know why you would be here if you doubted that there was a God at all. there's another level of doubt. Oh, there is a God, but he's limited in some way. He's, he's, he doesn't know everything, or he can't be everywhere, or he isn't powerful enough to deal with these things. There's, that's a common conception, misconception of God. There's a God, but he's limited. So doubting his, his abilities or his perfections or his greatness. Maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe there's others that would say, well, there is a limitless God. There has to be right? Believing those pieces about creation, right? Who, who could? How could God create everything if he's not powerful, right? How could he do all the things that he does in scripture if he doesn't know? And it says about his knowing. So there is a limitless God, but he isn't loving, right? Doubting God's care or doubting God's goodness. And I imagine if we were to poll everybody, you'd be like, none of you would say any of those things to be true. We all know the verses of those type of things. We know the truth about God, but what about this? We could say, well, there is a limitless, loving God, 
but he doesn't care about me. And we, you may get the answer to that question right on a test if it were written out. But we're talking about what's going on in your heart, like what your actual thoughts are. Now you can read in Scripture about all of these limitless, powerful things that God does for all these other people. And then you look at your own life and you think of your own circumstances and be like, well, God's not here. So he cares about so many people, but there's something about me where I'm exempt. This is where my doubts land most often because I know all the right answers, and I know that that's a wrong answer, right, that it's not about me. Like, I can then take you biblical, you know, biblical theology and systematic theology. I can take you through all those things where I know it's not true. Then it comes down to actual life. It's just kind of like, yeah, but I think God really doesn't like me very much. Right? I doubt that all of those things are really directed toward me when I think about the circumstances and struggles of my own life, and I think that you would too. As if God's power and his care and the fullness of his promises are only for other people, but they're not for us. Maybe because our past was too messy, or maybe we've been too bad recently, maybe we've just not been good enough this week, so God's promises somehow don't apply, like we fall through a crack. Maybe God just doesn't like us very much. There are times I don't like me very much. So why would God like me very much? Maybe Jesus would come to someone else's Thanksgiving, but he wouldn't come to yours. That he wouldn't seek to have that personal relationship with you. That's only for someone else. Is doubt sinful? Well, some doubt is. But all doubt isn't equal, and I don't know that that's really the helpful path to take. I mean, we all just, our lives are just filled with sin and Various levels of imperfections, like nothing that we do is ever good enough in and of itself. So I don't know that that's really the path that I want to take with that. Is, is doubt normal? I think even a brief look at Scripture, which we're not going to take today, but even a brief look at God's people in Scripture, even the really good ones would say yes. That doubt is, is a normal part of the experience even for God's people, even the good ones. What about this? Is dealing with doubt part of growing in faith? Is growing in faith a good thing? Is that a a biblical phrase, right, for us to grow in faith and grow in the knowledge of God? Yes. So if we're growing in it, doesn't that mean that it has to replace something else? And what is it replacing if it's not ignorance and doubt, What does it mean to increase our faith if not seeking to replace those doubts, replacing them with a trust and confidence in a God who personally cares about us and seeing the fullness of his plan, which includes us by his grace? What is Sarah doubting and and why? Well, she doubts God's promised, uh, his promise, excuse me, spoken here that she will have a son from her own womb within the next year of her life. And she doubts this because she and Abraham are both old, really old. We were at Cowan. Uh, I just shouldn't have, right? My mom raised me better, but I picked just like a person at random, this lady, and asked her age to kind of make this point. I think she was 93. It's kind of like, would you like to find out you're pregnant? <laughs> I just got huge, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, we could do that here. I won't. Uh, I love this, though. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Like, thank you, Moses, for your tactfulness. 
She's post-menopause, okay? It's, it's laughable that she and her husband could ever conceive a baby. And her doubts are very understandable, but they aren't acceptable to God. He's not okay with the doubts, even though it's just like, okay, I mean, like, what other response could she possibly have? We all understand those type of things. Her doubt, though, is causing her to say that God's word isn't true. That's a problem. He's, he has spoken this promise, and she's kind of like, that, that's not going to happen. That can't happen. Yeah, but God said it was going to happen. And God responds to her doubt. And I want to consider carefully how God responds to Sarah's doubt because we see similar patterns play out throughout Scripture and in our own lives. And there are a number of examples that we're not going to look to uh, of how God follows this same pattern. What does God do when you doubt? That's my question. The first thing is that God draws out your doubt. Keith and I have both tried to emphasize this in the last few chapters. Whenever we focused on Sarah as the text focuses, he said it so well two weeks ago. He said, all of the hurt in Sarai was building to this moment. Decades of hurt, of grieving over over her lack of children, that the Lord had kept her from conceiving, and then the promises, and then Hagar, and all of these things, it was building to this. The decades of barrenness before God called Abraham, and the 30 years of barrenness since God called him, especially the last 13 years of watching Abraham and Hagar's son Ishmael grow up, and watching those interactions. All of this has been from God for Sarah to reveal her heart and to draw out her doubt didn't create doubt. It didn't need to create doubt. The doubt was already there, but when it stayed hidden, it couldn't be dealt with, so God draws it out. God sovereignly, right, which means he has absolute authority to do anything that he wants. God sovereignly introduces suffering into the lives of his people. We really need to be able to wrestle with that. Because it's true, and it fills the pages of Scripture, God sovereignly, by His free choice, with all power at His disposal, He introduces suffering into the lives of His people. His people! We see the same truth over and over again, and examples really do abound. I'm going to only mention one parallel. John chapter 11. Jesus finds out that his really good friend, Lazarus, is sick. And Jesus purposefully stays where he is and doesn't go to this little town of Bethany, to Lazarus and to his sisters, Mary and Martha. He stays. And he stays so that Lazarus would die. When Mary and Martha first see Jesus, they say the same phrase. Do you remember what the phrase was? Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And they were right. How many other people had they seen Jesus heal? So Jesus introduces a profound 
moment of suffering into the lives of both Lazarus, but specifically into Mary and Martha. And then it's four days of grief before he shows up. And why did God bring this suffering and this pain into their lives? And it's to draw out their unbelief, to draw out the doubt that is revealed by our hurt and by our anger and by our confusion about the suffering that shows up into our lives that we didn't expect and don't want, but that God wants for us. So what has your Lord and God, let's go closer, what has your Father brought into your life that has revealed your doubt. I know some parts of some of your stories, but I'm confident there are many pieces that I don't know, maybe things that no one knows, like the things that you struggle with that you can't tell anybody, it just hurts too much. The, the words that you, I don't know what you're like, I scream them at God. I'm not very nice in my doubts. But God knows those things. Whether you verbalize them to him, whether you've thought them at him or not, God knows. He sees your doubt, he hears your cries or your incredulous laughter. However you respond. God draws out your doubt and then God confronts your doubt. That's verses 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Our God knows everything about us and nothing happens accidentally. It was no coincidence that he spoke the promise of verse 10, this time in the earshot of Sarah. She's behind the tent. How thick was that door? How loud did he have to speak, right? She's probably pretty good at listening on the other side of a tent door. I know uh, my kids are really good at listening to the conversations that we don't want them to hear. Imagine she's been pretty good at it over, you know, what, we'll say 75 years of hosting meals that she had to stay inside the tent for. But God, right, he didn't whisper this to Sarah. I think that he spoke it pretty clearly. He wanted her to hear it. This promise was for her, as well as to her husband, Abraham. Then she laughs to herself. Maybe she doesn't even speak her words out loud, but God hears. Does she chuckle inside? Does she stifle that laughter? (laughs) Am I going to have a... I'm so old. That's not going to happen. Does she whisper that? Does it it even leave her mind? But God hears whether she speaks it out loud or not. He discerned her thoughts from afar. Even before the words were on her tongue, he knew them all together. Her Lord knew them. And as is typical of the Lord, he calmly confronts her need, revealed by her doubt, by asking her questions. We've seen this. Adam and Eve, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Hagar, where are you going? And here, why did Sarah laugh? And then the most potent piece of it to really get, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sitting at Abraham's dinner table, eating food Sarah prepared for him, this is what God wants to talk about, the conversation that he starts. Truthfully, it's probably the main thing, if Sarah knew who this was, it's probably the main thing that Sarah wanted to ask about, that deepest pain in her life, 
right? Because if we could cut through the small talk with the Lord, with Jesus sitting at our table, I think that there are some questions that you want to ask him. Past, you know, who were the sons of God in Genesis 6? And what was it like to walk on water? Why did you do that to me? What was that all about? I thought you loved me. Like, what? where was that? Right? If Jesus was sitting at your dining room table and you could get to the real question, what would that question be? Why am I laughing? I'm laughing because I can't even stand to cry about it anymore. Why did I laugh? Well, why have you left me barren for all of these years? In John 11, Jesus answers Martha, like, Lord, where where have you been? Why weren't you here? Jesus answers this, I'm the resurrection, I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? Reckon with this in the midst of your grief. Do you believe this about me? Look at, don't look at the tomb, Martha. Look at me. Do you really know who I am? Do you really trust me? And, right, and in her doubts, what's, Martha like, tries to give the right answer, but what's her, what's her heart's answer? No, I don't understand why you weren't here. God, Jesus drew that out. So he could confront it? Sitting at your table, what question would Jesus ask you in response to your doubt? And please think carefully about this. Do you believe that Jesus wants you to ask him or talk to him about your deepest hurts and hardest questions? Do you believe he's that kind of a God or is he a different kind of a God that doesn't care? Is he he distant or is he close? I think that's a really important question for us to ask. Do you believe that Jesus actually wants to talk to you about those things? Wants to hear from you about those? He is not just a social media God of clean houses and smiling faces. He's sitting at your table, so talk to him. Closer, really, even than at your dining room table. Uh, But we don't need that, right? We're all fine. How are we? We're fine. Jesus sitting at your table, how are you doing? I'm fine. Maybe we could admit that we're somehow, were you here, were you guys here when Keith walked through that from Uganda? Oh, I am somehow. Or there was, I am, I am not fine. (laughs) Wow. In her fearful attempt to avoid rebuke, Sarah lies. Poor woman. I picture her still behind the tent door, her muffled response coming through. Huh? What was he, what was he talking about? I, I didn't laugh, right? Still not, she's still not outside. It's having a conversation across a tent flap. It must have been kind of weird. And another patient rebuke from the Lord. No, but you did. You did laugh. You did doubt. I hear. I know. I would say that's actually why I'm here right now. And in addition to those questions that he asks and the correction that he gives, what else does God do? God reassures you in your doubt. He draws it out. He confronts it. This is what came out of this. The first part of verse 14, I loved so much when I first started looking at this. I was going to do the whole sermon on it. 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? That'll preach. And it's so great that I almost missed the second part. Listen to God restate his promise in response to Sarah's doubting laughter. At the appointed time, I will return to you. I will. About this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. He already spoken that to Abraham in chapter 17. He already had spoken it in chapter 18. He wasn't, he wasn't ambiguous. He was very clear about that promise. Yet, in response to Sarah's doubt, after drawing it out and confronting it, God restates that promise again. He just says the same thing because she needed to hear it another time. It was for her sake. This is going to happen. God draws out our doubt and he confronts it, uh, questioning us or rebuking us as necessary. But that's not the end. He doesn't rebuke and leave. Mic drop. And gone. It's not who God is. It's not what he does. It's not what he does here. He doesn't rebuke and leave. He doesn't walk away. Those painful steps of the suffering that's drawing out the doubt and the pain of the rebuke of confrontation, it hurt enough, and now you're going to add to the sting of that by asking me why I feel that way? Right? He doesn't leave in the midst of that at all, and all of that are precursors leading us to God reassuring us of his promises. Jesus and Martha, they walk to Lazarus' tomb. Jesus tells them to roll away the stone. More doubts answered with another question. Lord, by this time, there's there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I have given you eternal life, Martha. Don't you believe that? Right? He delayed. He shows up. Do you believe this about me? Her doubts, like, I'm struggling with that. He says, right, because I am the life. I'm the life. Do you believe me? Yes and no. I am the life, right? He reassures her in her doubt about his promises. Christians who suffer and doubt and choose to run to God's word will find his promises more fresh and more true than they have ever been to them. That's what happens. I've seen it play out. Um, probably more clearly in Leanne's life than even in my own, but I've seen it in myself as well, right? So it's kind of like the, God's the last one that you want to talk to, but when you're desperate enough to yell at him and come to his word, be like, fine, talk to me. His promises are right there for you. And it's just like, oh, I had no idea how thirsty I was. I was starving in my doubt. I didn't even know it. And you've given me drink. You've given me food. It was all right here. I've read that a thousand times. It meant nothing. And now it means everything to me. And it wouldn't have meant all that if it hadn't been for God drawing out the doubt and confronting it. Like, that's how, it, that's how he works. And you're like, yes. It's like you had been reading about God in someone else's story. And it was all black and white. And then because of that, that suffering, that loss, that pain, whatever, because of that, when you come back to it again, now you're reading about God in your own story and it's in color. And time and again, God comforts and reassures us with his eternal promise. I care for you, my son. I care for you, my daughter. 
But how much of that promise depends on Sarah? Or how much of that promise depends on Martha? How much of that promise depends on us? None of it. This is the last thing. What does God do when you doubt? God remains faithful despite your doubt. He's not ignorant of it. Right? He's drawn it out and confronted it. He's re-spoken the promise, but then what's he going to do? Going to wait until right, you get everything lined up, and then he's going to act? So you're going to be like, well, sorry, Sarah, I was going to, but I'll be back next year, and I'll ask you again. And if you believe me that time, then I will give you a son. Is that how the story goes? Sarah didn't need to understand or straighten up in order for God's promises to come to pass. The promise that God had first given to Abraham 30 years prior, he would most certainly be faithful to bring about. Abraham would be a father of a son that Sarah would give birth to. And Sarah's doubts could not interrupt that. I don't know how that story played out between the two of them. This is none of our business. But it did. Truly, nothing was too hard for the Lord. Whatever those boundaries, whatever those obstacles were, they were not in his way. And the glory of God was seen. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. And the glory of God was seen in Bethany at that cave. In obedience to the command of Jesus, Lazarus came back from the dead and came out of his tomb. And not because Mary and Martha or the disciples believed, but because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the resurrection and he is the the life. And whoever believes in him, though he died, though we die, yet shall we live, because that's the promise of Jesus. And your doubts in him and about his care for you are not going to stop the fact that you have life in him by faith. That his mercy and grace are evident in your life. God has not forgotten about you. I don't know how many people there are, but I want to like say that 110 times. God has not forgotten about you. God has not forgotten about you. God's not forgotten about you. God's not forgotten about you. He's not abandoned you. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And he knows you. And his comfort is for you. Not if you doubt, but when you doubt. His comfort and his grace are for you. And even when you doubt, you still cannot stop his promises from being fulfilled for you because God is faithful always and forever. That's just who he is. God is a promise keeper, covenantally. He is. Remember, the, he cut apart animals. <laughs> Be like, Abraham, let this happen to me if I don't keep my promise to you. Like, that's the level of God's faithfulness. And God's not going to get cut in part, right? That's not going to happen. Hebrews takes that even further, right? He swears on his own self because there's nothing greater to swear on. Two impossible things. It's impossible for God to speak a falsehood. It's impossible for God to lie. So we have this steadfast assurance, an anchor for our souls. God will keep his promises, God will keep his promises to you. So what should you do when you doubt? What does God do when we doubt? Well, God draws it out. And he confronts it. He reassures us of his promise. He remains faithful. But what should you do when you doubt? Well, I think it starts off really simple of just admitting it. Like admit your 
your doubt, or maybe it, maybe it doesn't look like doubt for you. Maybe it looks like hurt. Uh, maybe it looks like anger. Uh, maybe it looks just like confusion. Just admit that to the Lord. There's no point in hiding it or trying to lie to Him. He, he already knows. Like a parent, right, with, that saw the broken vase. What happened? I don't know. Okay. What happened? Beats me. Did you break the vase? What vase? When you were, <laughs> right? Come on. Like, talk to me. I already know that happened this week. Did you? No. You wouldn't be crying if it wasn't true. It's obviously true. That's God's our Father. Like, He already knows how you really feel. They're going to come before Him in prayer, like, oh, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. I'm so happy with everything in my life. May your kingdom come. Amen. Like, what is that? Are you lying to him? Like when just when you pray happy when you're not happy? What's the point of that? He already knows how you feel. And, and brothers and sisters, it is poison to your soul to not admit to God how you really feel. It's not going to benefit you. If it's not, right, that's that drawing out, right? If that illness isn't drawn to the surface and shown in its symptoms, it can't be dealt with. It's healing to admit freely and honestly to God the turmoil in your soul. So admit your doubt and, and answer God's questions too. Ask and answer yourself. But truly, think about it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I know you'd be like, well, no. Okay, but in your life, like whatever the thing is, is it too hard? It's not, but you need, don't, don't just like, oh, Peter said or the Bible said and Abraham said this. No, I need you to ask the question to yourself and take time to answer it. What do you believe? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Ask and answer God's questions. And John, right? I'm the resurrection of the life, right? I have power of life and death. I give it to whoever I want. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life for you and for anyone else? The only sort. Do you believe that? Right? It's not, um, it's not redundant or unnecessary to ask a question you already know the answer to and refresh yourself in the truth. Do you believe these things about Jesus? Ask and take the time to answer. Don't just assume those type of things for yourself, right? Remind yourself of the truth by asking those questions and then hear God's promises again. Right? How many, right? The, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, right? I've formed you and I know you. You are forgiven for my name's sake. Not a hair can fall from your head outside of my plan and permission for you. I will come again so that where I am, you may be also. Not just I will come again, right? But I'm going to come again for you. Because I, because where I am, I want you to be there. So he's not just coming back. He's coming back for us, collectively and individually. He's coming back for you because he wants you to be with him. He's preparing a place for you. When you doubt, keep praying, right? Those things that you long for, whether that's a healing or a provision or a relationship restored or a person's salvation, just never stop asking God for those things. It's not a waste of time. 
Persevere and endure and keep trusting in, in the God who hears and answers prayers. So don't stop praying about it. Just keep bringing it before him like a, like a widow who, who annoys a governor. Annoy God with your requests. It's the parable Jesus taught. We don't really annoy God, but be like, if I ask again, he's going to be irritated. Because if, if somebody asked me that many times, I would be irritated. But God's not like you, and he's not like me. And he wants to hear, so just keep asking. And wait with hope for God's answer. And this is a tough one because we don't know exactly what God is going to do. So we, we confidently expect an answer that we're not going to be sure about. And I struggle even to write this one. Like, I know it's true, but it's just kind of like, oh, I know God's going to do this, but maybe he's not. But I can't, so my response is to keep that distance. Okay, what well, your will be done. I'm not actually going to ask for anything, and I'm not actually going to expect anything because I don't want you to disappoint me again. Like, do you hear, like, this is the doubt flowing through. It's like, God, I need you to do this. You can do this. I long for you to do this. I wait for you to do this. I'm eagerly, I just want to see it. I'm going to see it. Maybe I won't see it. Live in the longing for God to do what you are asking for. Live in the longing of it. And it's, it's uncomfortable and it feels like tripping. But you're not going to fall. He's not going to let you fall. He's the one who's going to keep you from stumbling. So just stay in the longing. And when it doesn't happen when you want or how you want, then pour out your disappointment to God and then just keep asking and keep longing and don't stop asking God to do what you long for and let him draw all of those things out. And then this, this last piece, and I'm just not adequate to even talk about it, but you've got to love your loving God. Um, to seek to be satisfied with God. That when there's nothing else, that he really is enough. Uh, who he is, be sad, let him satisfy you. How he views you even if nobody else views you correctly, what he has done for you, even when nobody else does things for you, and what he is doing for you, and what he will do for you, even if everybody else lets you down and everybody else leaves, right? the reality of who God is, that he's enough. And, and when I was trying to think about this, I remember this story from 1 Samuel 1. Remember the, the, do you remember who the woman is in 1 Samuel 1? Samuel's mom? Remember her name? Hannah. And remember her husband's name? This is just to keep you with me. Elkanah or Elkanah, however you want to say that, that's fine. And God bless him, uh, he did not understand his wife. And I know that because of this conversation. She's weeping every year because she doesn't have a baby. And he says the dumbest thing a husband could ever say. Am I not better to you than ten sons? And do you know what the answer is? Husbands, I, I, I think you probably know, right? Wives, you definitely know. No! <laughs> like, you're not! better to me than 10 different sons. I want a baby. Why am I not? No. <laughs> like, like the longing of her heart, Elkanah could not meet. But I see God in this as a covenant husband, right? In that faithfulness, just be like, whatever that relationship is or that healing or that hurt or that longing, am I not better to you than this? And the answer to that is actually Yes. But we just, we, we struggle to believe that. Is God better to you than, than a child trusting in him? Yes. Is God better to you than a spouse who cares for you like they should? Yes. 
Is God better to you than providing for all of your physical needs the way that you want? Yes. Is God better to you than life itself in the course of your sickness? And the answer is, is yes, but it doesn't mean that I just like feel it all the time. Like there's, a, there's the true answer that we don't feel, but that's in our doubt. That's what we need to try to move ourselves toward, that God is actually better than the answer to the request that you want. The best part of the gospel is found in God's covenant promise where he says repeatedly, I will be their God and they will be my people. Right? There's a coming together of that. So we could expand that. I will love them forever as their God and they will love me forever as my people. It's amazing to me that God ate at Abraham's table and that Jesus ate with sinners just like us, whether we're Pharisees or tax collectors. It's amazing to me that God calls his people to eat at his table. All those times where God provided for them, that Christ calls us to come and eat at his table like we do at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper at the Lord's table, the Lord's body, and the Lord's blood, right? This is a meal that he has prepared and offered to us. So we accept Jesus' invitation to come to him and eat what he has provided for us. It's amazing that God ate at Abraham's table. It's amazing that we eat at Christ's table. And one day... All of this, from start to finish, will be perfectly and permanently brought together where God will prepare a feast and his people will all be there and he will sit down to eat alongside of us. Christ will eat with us. Not prepare and walk away. He's at the head of the table. Eating as you eat. Better than what Abraham had outside of his tent. Because Abraham just stood by, he served, and God ate. But this time, it's like, I'm preparing and I'm eating with you. And on that day, all of our longings will be fulfilled. We will see God face to face. We will know fully as we are fully known. We will love God that day with all of our hearts and without any sin. And we will know and understand that we belong forever to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christ will be ours forevermore. Christ will be yours forevermore. I'm going to sing about that. There's a song from a few years ago. Team, if you guys could come up. The song released a few years ago. It's just ministered to me, and it's just like, oh, I want to sing that song again, and then come to find out we've never sang it here before. I hope that you already are familiar with it. If not, that's why we posted it for us to sing together. But this is such a beautiful song. This is such a beautiful promise that, brothers and sisters, by faith and by His grace, Christ is yours forevermore. In when we're distracted by other things and in darkness and then all the way through into eternity. Like this is the promise of the gospel that Jesus has offered himself to you. We receive that promise. Father, thank you for your grace. You come and eat with sinners. And you will make us through Christ. You will make us and are making us, have made us and are making us worthy to be in your presence. When we will eat with you, we will belong there because of Jesus. Amen.